This evening I'd like to give you some teachings on the infinite immensity of impermanence as well as a moment-to-moment understanding, experiential understanding of impermanence. And it's said that uh, contemplation on this can give us a sense of spiritual urgency when we see it on a long-range view, on a bigger view, and also on a moment-to-moment view. And what that does for us in that spiritual urgency is it gives us a chance to live our lives in alignment with the truth instead of resisting it. So this is about the river of change, the river of life. Probably like many of you, there's quite a few of you who are in the same age group as Mark and myself. When I was in my 20s, about 40 years ago, I was inspired by the book by Hermann Hesse, uh, the name of Siddhartha. How many of you have read that? A lot of you, yeah. And I've forgotten the details now. So much of the book was so beautiful, and just thinking about the time I read it gives, gives me the chills. Um, what remains is an image uh, of the river, and the part of the book where um, Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, was sitting next to a river that's always moving, always changing, that flowing water that was so impossible to stop, not able to hold anything, uh, you know, picking up a piece of, a handful of that water would just flow right through his hands. And so that image of him sitting next to the river, taking in with each sense door, the impermanence of all of life was a teaching from nature, which we all have the opportunity to take in here as we're here in this beautiful forest. So when I remember that story, um, I try to experience that in terms of this present time, as, as the Buddha to be did, this real-time place of every sense door experiencing that change which we have the opportunity to do while we're here or anywhere, really. But here, we're less distracted, we're able to be more in the present moment of things. And not just in this present moment of taking a step or, you know, hearing a bird song and all that beauty that happens there and that deep relaxation. But we're able to be in the present moment to enable our hearts and minds to open to that fluxing nature of everything within us and around us, moment to moment. So being in the present moment is the first step, the first kind of opening that we come to. This is what, when people come to the Dharma, a lot of times we say, oh, we've come because we want to be in the present moment, really to be there and enjoy it. But there's a lot more to it than that. It's, it's not just about that. It's about what we can learn from being in the present moment, what we can deepen into. So in uh, 2014, I took a sabbatical. I hadn't taken anything like that in a long time, or at all, ever. 
actually raising four children and then getting into the Dharma and serving the Dharma. And um, there came some conditions in my life when I thought, well, it's time for a break. It's time to really... What I wanted to do was to experience life at the pace of nature, not at the pace that was being lived around me and in me. But I wanted to walk. And I had heard about the Camino de Santiago for a long time, that the many um, pathways to this place uh, called Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And um, there are many trails and paths, and I wanted to take the one that had, that was the most beautiful, of course, uh, that had the most shade. I wanted to walk through forests and trees and along riversides. And so I chose with a friend of mine, a nun friend of mine, Buddhist nun friend of mine, to walk the um, French route. It, it comes from southern France and into Spain. I only had two weeks, so I decided to walk from a place uh, that was in the middle of Spain called Leon and walk towards Santiago, which was uh, the place where it said that uh, the bones of St. James are said to be buried there. And um, in Spanish, Santiago is a word for James. Uh, so this is the path of St. James. It's an ancient pilgrimage. It's uh, a thousand years old or more. And um, while I could still walk, you know, I'm getting older, so I don't know what like five years would bring on to me or even the next year. So I thought, this is a time to go. So I took that walk with my friend, 200 miles And then, by the way, the next year, 2015, I was in Europe already teaching, so I decided to walk another 300 miles. So um, I have a proud pair of shoes that's walked 500 miles. (laughs) I really kept them. Uh, They're on display. They're like my trophy. So it was a rough journey in a lot of ways, you know, outside and inwardly, but it was deeply rewarding for me to walk that. Um, I walked from sometimes from 11 miles to 20 miles a day. And I was so bone tired that, you know, we'd go to sleep in these uh, albergues, which are these places where maybe, maybe one time I think there were 70 people in this place. And in this dormitory that we were put into, probably there were 30 people. But it didn't matter. You know, you just walked in and you were so tired that it didn't matter where you were placed. You, were, you just went to sleep because your, your muscles and bones and just your breath was so, your lungs were so tired. So there was heat and rain and beauty along the way. We walked along a lot of rivers and um, past, crossed rivers too by foot and um, also by bridge. Um, and so I crossed a lot of bridges inwardly and outwardly and it was really an important journey for me to take. I felt like I was more in tune with nature than I'd ever been uh, because it, the time of spending just walking along and not riding a train or a bus or a car. 
It was one thing really beautiful about my companion. Uh, she's a trekker. She would trek through Nepal and I think even parts of Tibet. She's a Buddhist nun. Her name is Virnyani, a good friend of mine. And uh, on the beginning of the route of the day, sometimes she would say, uh, she'd stop me and say, I want you to look at those, those kind of um, hills that we're going to cross over. And, you know, there would be kind of one grouping of hills and then another, and then you could see into a distance like snow on top of one. And she said, at the end of the day, believe it or not, we're going to be where that snow is. And I, I just couldn't believe her. I just said, all I can do is take one step at a time. And that's about what we do here. You know, we just, if we're looking to get through the whole day, we're really going to be at the losing end at the very beginning. (laughs) So we really need to think just one step at a time. I'm just going to get through this next breath. Or if you can think any further than that, I'm going to get through this next sitting or this next walking period. By the way, has anybody here walked the Camino? Oh, it's really a good thing to do. So I'll tell you more about it. So she'd remind me we're going to be up there. And I would just say, I'm going to just take one step at a time. And boy, sometimes, even now, we take a walk together, and she'll look at me and she says, you have that Camino look. Because I'd just be really just, okay, just take this next step. Take this next step. And I got really strong taking that walk. I got strong inwardly. I got strong outwardly. And even when I went back to my uh, conditioning class, my teacher thought she couldn't believe how much muscle she saw in my, because I was using the, you know, the trekking sticks. So when you pass by everybody on this Camino, this way, uh, Camino means way, it can mean road, um, they would say, Buen Camino, have a good walk. You know, Buen Camino, Buen Camino. And that's just like all this metta was around us. So probably at least 30 times a day, you know, we would say to somebody, Buen Camino, Buen Camino. And it was so metta producing. It was really wonderful in that way. So there was this natural rhythm that I felt I was at. Um, And I hadn't felt that in a long, long time. There was a lot of, you know strife in in my life like all of yours and mine hasn't been any different in terms of the level of dukkha i think we all have different levels of suffering and we face it differently but i'm pretty in that normal range if not more i think for myself which we all think for ourselves right we have more dukkha than anybody else um so being at the natural rhythm of life was really healing. So I really want to emphasize that because here you have that opportunity to be at this natural rhythm of life. Everything around us is in training our hearts, the rhythm of our heartbeats, the way our breath is going, the way blood moves through our vessels, um, the way everything is being taken in. And so make use of it. You know, really um, enjoy that you don't have your devices uh, around you. I mean, I know we still have greed, hatred, and delusion that's working all the time, but we don't have, um, you know, ways that we're constantly looking 
does somebody still like me? Or, you know, how many likes did I get on Facebook? And all of that, always creating this solid sense of self. Here we can really dissolve into nature, really and truly. We have this opportunity. So the concept of time doesn't exist when we're here, really. How many times have you been walking down somewhere, you know, from here to somewhere on the property or outside of the property, and realized you just lost track of time? You know, there's nothing but this next step. Have any of you realized that? Just how timeless it is. And we're in this, that means we're in this present moment. And we're not being in this present moment. This is not our end goal to be in the present moment. Our being in this present moment is really helping us to deepen into life, to see what life really means on a deeper level. You can't see that in the future by planning. You can't even really understand that by living in the past or what beautiful spiritual experiences you've had in the past. You can realize it more fully and truly by being in the present moment. And so this time as I walked, it was really that way for me. A lot of the times, not all the time. But there was a sense of just smelling in a moment, there was just smelling. That was all that was happening. The scents that were going on around me. And it wasn't about being with the scent and saying, oh, that's a pine tree. Oh, that's a, you know, the scent of the water moving along. It was just being with this closeness of, and this intimacy of smelling that sense door, breathing in the sense of the bark and the leaves and uh, the trees and the damp soil, and the changing and refined odors that come as you walk through a forest or next to a river or even uh, in a village. And then there was just the sensing of sensations in, in the body, and just the muscles contracting and doing its thing to get me through the, that day. And they weren't being realized that, oh, this is that muscle. And it was just the feeling of sweat on the body, the water element, or the contraction of a muscle, the earth element, or vibration, or the movement of the leg, which is air element, and the, the heaviness of everything, of the body sometimes, which is a manifestation of water element. It was really being with the elemental nature of life, So there was just sensing, for example, the raindrops that would come in uh, some of the beautiful countryside there, the warmth and the coolness I could feel on the face or different parts of the body that were exposed, the pulsing that was happening, just feeling the heartbeat really fast and maybe stopping sometimes and feeling the blood rushing through um, the veins, the vessels of my body every moment of that changing nature, feeling it. Just that. Just feeling it. No sense of like Kamala or that I'm a mother or a partner of anyone or a teacher. Nothing of that. It was just the nature kind of falling all over me and feeling all over me. So there was just seeing taking in the shapes and the form and the color 
of life moving all around me. It was like a kaleidoscope. You know, um, when I was a little girl, we had these things you looked into and you'd twist it around and you'd see all these colors moving around and it would give you some delight. Um, I don't know if kids have that nowadays. I haven't bought any of that for my grandchildren, so it must be lost. But you can find it on Amazon, probably. <laughs> so I wasn't thinking of Amazon either on, on ordering anything when I was walking. It was just things like that, just hearing. Wow, when you're in the present moment, you hear things that you've never heard before. Have you heard things you've never heard before here? Or heard it in a different way? You know, just kind of crunching leaves. Or the train. I love the train. It's so soothing to hear that train. And um, just the birds in the morning. You know, the first bird that I hear sings. I have the window open a little bit beside me just so I can hear the bird, the first bird. I wake up, it's still dark, so it's really a treat. So on this um, travel uh, of inwardly and outwardly, every moment of changing, and that changing nature, really taking it in, just knowing it. So what knows it? Just the mind. It's just being with the mind sometimes. Oh, I was with the mind a lot. You know, worrying, a lot of different things going through the mind. Um, but also appreciating, loving, and, you know, seeing the goodness in, in people, in myself, and just the people who were in the stores or in the places where we ate. But that too, constant change and permanence. So listening deeply to the teachings of life, you know, on this Camino, on this way that we are on here too, the forests and the rivers um, we're giving and are giving all the time. The movement of water, organic material flowing, the energy systems of currents below the surface. The other day I stood next to where I could hear the river flow. And um, just sensing the currents that are in that river, as well as hearing the water element go by, changing temperature. We have a lot of that here. So in Hawaii it's pretty constant. So I love being in different places where it isn't so constant. So that's the outer environment. And the inner environment was easily opening my heart and mind to the flowing river in, inside. You know, the flowing of life inside this body-mind. The pulsing, the water element moving by, the earth element, hardness and softness. Uh, the air element, the vibrations, the things that move my feet, that current inside, the endless process of thinking. So it could easily open my heart to the nature of that too happening within me. And 
things appearing and disappearing. You know, and that's part of life. And taking that in all the time, the impermanence of that. Not like in a, a kind of a spiritual book read, but as a spiritual experience. The appearance and disappearance of things all the time happening in me and around me. So, some of you know of the poet David White, and uh, he wrote several poems about the Camino. And this is one of them. I'll read part of it. Because it's talking about our life here, too. The way forward, the way between things, the way already walked before you, the path disappearing and reappearing, even as the ground gave way beneath you, the grief apparent only in the moment of forgetting, then the river, the mountain, the lifting song of the skylark, inviting you over the rain-filled pass when your legs had given up. And all of that is so perfectly true. It was for me. So in recent years, I've been tuning into the immensity and infinity of time that we as human beings process in this endless repeated cycle of birth and life and death and rebirth again and again and again. You can think of this repeated cycle as in terms of one life if um, you're not into rebirth, understanding of rebirth. But like Manindra says, you don't have to believe it, but it's true. You know, I can see that it's, I can understand that it's true because when you see it in one life and you see the continuity of consciousness moving on and on and on, it's easy to understand how consciousness can go from not just from one moment to the next, but from one lifetime to the next. So this is called samsara, this endless repeated cycle of birth and life and death and rebirth over and over and over again. One definition of samsara, I I use this word now because it's something you'll hear in the Dharma a lot. It's perpetual wandering through states of existence. Perpetual wandering, the endless cycle of eternally becoming, becoming something in our life, becoming a sense of self or however, whatever appellation you give to that self. Um, Birth, Life's changes, death, rebirth, and all over again. You can say one moment is like that, which it is. The birth of a moment, the changing of it. There's a death of that moment. And then there's a rebirth consciousness, another moment rising again. So recently I've been reflecting on how long has it been flowing and fluctuating like this. No, it's not just, we hear in the, in the Dharma about its world cycles, like a, hearing the story long ago of this, this Buddha, which we receive these teachings from, was, is from this world cycle. But there are numerous others from other world cycles. And so it, like, it puts my mind in some kind of oddness, and I can't take it in. But it's sometimes good to kind of break ideas that you have about life and, you know, break some kind of strong structure that you have 
and just to kind of open to the immensity and to the infinity of something, the possibility of that. It just breaks some inner holdings on to structures that kind of limit us in life. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but it could be so. So reflecting on how long it's been flowing on since time immemorial, and we hear teachings or the Buddha's words in suttas or sutras about this, about the infinite immensity of impermanence, the joys, the sorrows, the pains, the pleasures that we all go through, how much of this needs to happen before we finally have had enough? I mean, that's a question I'm asking myself now at this time in my life and at this spiritual juncture in my life. How much has to happen to this body and mind continuum, you know, this constant pummeling of life before I really finally break through into something that's beyond this conditioned life? Craving is endless, they say, in this level of life. But there is a, uh, in the unconditioned, and when the mind is pure, there is no more of that craving. So having a, um, a positive kind of um, seeking for that, so I use the word seeking instead of wanting, is, is beneficial. That's what we're all here for, whether we know it or not. We have this seeking for that experience to go beyond, or that non-experience to go beyond this conditioned existence. So even though that sounds kind of, wow, I don't know that if that's part of my vocabulary kind of thought you might have, a lot of times my teachers would say, when I'd have this kind of puzzled look on my face, like, what are you saying? Uh, they'd say, just take that in and hold it there in the back of your mind, because sometime you might have an experience that lives into those, that understanding. Because it's said that we have to kind of know it somehow, hear it. That's why the teachings of the Buddha and all the great masters are so important, because we hear about possibilities and potentialities that we may not have heard from our everyday living. And then we hear it and we say, maybe. And then that maybe comes true one day. So realizing this um, kind of spiritual urgency, which is... um, there's a Pali term for that called samvega, which you all have, otherwise you wouldn't be here. It's a, kind, it's a spiritual urgency, and we all have it to some degree. And it becomes really, really strong at some different points of our life, um, especially when we get older, you know, we start having it. But even when we're younger, I know Mark, Mark and I often, when we're together and eating and spending time about um, just figuring out what what we're going to do next with you all. Uh, (laughs) You know, we start telling stories of what it's like to have this spiritual urgency. And, you know, for me, when it came up, hearing little stories from Mark about when it came up, uh, it's come up for him or his um, wife, my good friend, Wynne. And so... um, I, I realized I had it when I was very young, 
How many of you felt that urgency when you were young? Most of you, yeah. So that's that samvega, that spiritual urgency. And we don't have any reason sometime to come to a retreat except we want the silence or we know we need to go or because that's where we really learn to deepen into understandings about life that then we can bring into that life we have in relational life, in relative. This is relative also, but to our families, to our homes, communities. So it's a sense of urgency. Samvega is described as a sense of urgency to escape the rounds of wandering meaninglessly through this endless cycle. And it's said that this needs to be balanced with pasada, or a clear and serene confidence that allows one to proceed confidently towards the goal of liberation without lapsing into despair. That's why, as Mark was so beautifully describing yesterday, that we really need to have this kind of calm abiding. We need to have this concentration, this uh, tranquility, this sense of that the body and mind have a, a space to heal, to rest deeply. On, and we learn it maybe on a um, single-pointed object, maybe like the breath or other things that we use in, in the Dharma and other traditions. But then we bring that to the changing nature of life. And then we're able to actually rest in that change. With that level of concentration, with a certain level of calm abiding, with a certain level of tranquility, a certain level of knowing that on a very deep level we're being healed by this. So when I was younger and I listened to the Dhamma talks that were beyond my capacity to understand, there was always this assurance that there would be a time that there would be meaning connected with that because of experience. And so just following the teachers that I had, just following their um, guidance, there, there has been, you know, there's still, my path isn't finished, but there has been times of like, oh, now I understand that. Like all of you are, are seeing you understand things in different ways. My aspiration is to a peace and happiness beyond the conditions to experience that over and over again, beyond this relative life, beyond this relational life. So sometimes we just need to hear the words of the Buddha. It's said in so many suttas, you know, that people would hear the words of a great master. Like in this case, you know, we are trained in the teachings of the Buddha and the Dhamma, so that's what That's our expertise, so that's what we give to you. And it's not the only thing, but that's what we know, um, among other things too, but that's why we're here, to be in service of that. So sometimes it's said that when uh, people would hear these words, right away they would become enlightened. You know, there are some particular teachings when um, the Buddha gave them that person was enlightened and everyone was happy around him. Um, sometimes even five, they would say, I don't know if it was 
really true that there were 500, maybe that would mean many people were enlightened at that time. But I'm going to read to you some suttas that talk about the fact that there is no discoverable beginning, just this changing nature at every level. And this is about the immensity and the infinity of, uh, of this anicca. Anicca is a word for impermanence. So it gives us a sense of what's beyond the concept of time and the understanding of this cycle of birth and life and death over and over and over again, this samsara. So this is from the suttas. A Brahmin asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara? Is it possible to give a simile? So before I give the answer that the Buddha gave, I want to explain that in Buddhist terms, he's, the Buddha is going to mention the word eon. Eon is an immeasurably long time. In the cosmology of um, the Buddhist teachings, an eon means a kalpa, and a kalpa is 4.32 billion years. So just a sense of the infinity of time. And I looked this up too, and in astronomy, an eon is 100,000 million years. So beyond our sort of limits of understanding sometimes. So a Brahmin asked the Buddha this question, how many eons have elapsed and gone by wandering in this cycle of samsara? Is it possible to give a simile? And the Buddha answered, consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than that. It is not easy to count them and say that there are so many eons, hundreds of eons or thousands or hundreds of thousands. For what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is, t- it is enough to be liberated from them. And by that, I translate that to mean that isn't it enough to be liberated from them? You know, having gone through all these eons of life and, and uh, birth and life and death and rebirth over and over again. So on another occasion, the Blessed One said, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune or misery, whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. This samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus? Which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with those you don't like and being separated from those you like. Which is more, this or the water in the four great oceans? And the bhikkhus uh, said, 
as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. And the Blessed One answered, Good, Bhikkhus, good. It is good that you understand the Dhamma. And so, you know, maybe it kind of boggles your mind. And sometimes that's good when it just kind of lets the mind fall apart somehow and not kind of be so locked in to old ideas. So the fluctuations of just one life, maybe you don't see it as in terms of world cycles, but one life, birth, and the stage of, of infancy, childhood, the teenage years. I mean, would you like to live the teenage years over again? <laughs> Nobody's here a teenager, right? hope so. Uh, Early and later adulthood, I mean, that was hard too. (laughs) I mean, it's hard right now. (laughs) Aging and into our elderhood and then the dying process and death doesn't scare me, but the dying process does, you know. So all the happiness, the gain and the loss, it slips through our fingers like water in our hands. It's just all so impermanent. I mean, when I think of that, momentarily I'm freed from, you know, the, the hardships of, of life that I have too, just like you do. Maybe they, they, I can hold them in a different way, but they're there. So when I was in my 20s, the end of the river was not something I thought about too much. I was too busy with basic survival, raising children. And when Mark was talking last night about, you know, his friends having a child, and that that was really good, you know, that concentration that you put. How many of you are parents here? Yeah, or parents-to-be, yes. (laughs) Um, So you know how it is, you know, with them. You you put all your energy towards that. And in some ways you go to bed... Not all the time, but it's so satisfying, right? I knew what I needed to do. I was raising three children on my own for about seven years. And I knew what I needed to do. And the conditions that led me to that were simply horrible. But you know what? Having to pay attention to those children really saved me. I really felt like that was part of my survival that kept me alive. Um, You know... There were times when I thought, well, it probably would be better if I didn't wake up. But then I thought of the kids, I better wake up tomorrow, <laughs> you know. But that was then, you know, that was an impermanent time too. So, even so, um, you know, I have a lot of interest in the beginning sense of urgency that I felt during that time. Just that sense of urgency to understand what this life is all about on a deep level. And to, you know, sometimes I would look to my teachers in Manindra, I could talk to him like I would talk to my my father or grandfather, and I'd complain and I'd say things to him that didn't make sense. And uh, 
You know, he, he was so patient with me, so patient. And so sometimes I'd look to him to solve my problem, and he'd say, you know, in meditation, to make it go away, make the pain go away. And he said, he would say, the Buddha solved his problem, now you have to solve yours. And as my teacher um, Upandita would say, when this is an old story some of you have heard, when I went to him and said, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. He said, I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> I'm here to make you mindful, which is really the truth. Of, you know, He's not going to take it all away. He's, he's here to help me be mindful so I can learn it for my, my own liberation. So that, you know, the end of life in my 20s was so far away, busy raising children. But now it's like most of my life is behind me. It's like I'm looking in the rear view mirror a lot. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll have 10 more years, maybe 20, maybe it's only a year. Who knows? So how am I going to use my life now? So there's a natural organic arising of a reflection on aging and death. I mean, some of you have it of, through your age, um, and some of you, even as you're young, I, anybody below the age of 68 is young to me. <laughs> so, or at least if you're in your 50s. Okay. You're still pretty young. Somebody said one time, oh, she's, an, uh, she's older. Well, what do you mean? She's 50. And I said, oh, that makes me like ancient, right? (laughs) So as we keep the truth of impermanence in in the forefront of our mind every day, we really have that urgency to make every moment count. I mean, Upandita would say a lot of times when I would leave the room, say things like no gaps, meaning just, you know, be mindful as much as you can. He would really mean no gaps, though. You know, be mindful all the time. But, you know, I was middle path. I knew I couldn't do it all the time. And I did pretty good, so I don't have that kind of, like, strictness. And so sometimes he would say things like, you came a long ways, make every moment count. And he, that would be translated from Burmese into English. So last year, uh, no, a few couple of years ago now, maybe almost three, I did a personal month-long uh, retreat in Lumbini, which is the birthplace of the Buddha. Always wanted to go there. And this was, um, I went there because Upandita was going there to teach at part of the time, and also to be with one of his teachers, and also a teacher of mine, um, Uvivikananda. So usually I don't bring any reading material with me, and I just, I wanted to read my heart, you know. And so um, I did bring some reading material, and this is what really kept me going and keeping the Dharma alive and keeping my energy in a middle pathway going every day. So I'd like to read to you these words of advice from one of my... um, most revered teachers, I never met him, but if I, if he were alive today, I, he'd probably be one of my teachers, Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, 
a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. I admire him so much and probably, you know, I was around him in some life. So this, this, what I brought with me, this one piece of paper here, I read every day and um, it gave me a sense of spiritual urgency and it reminded me of the preciousness of life. Not about that I was going to die soon, so I'd better do this practice, but that every moment of my life is precious, so remember that. So here are his words, and I hope I can channel the purity of his strength and his intention um, as much as he did for many of us. So he said, and this is a kind of a guidance for me, ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth even think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? Indeed, those who attain ultimate realization compared to those who do not are as few as the stars you can see at daybreak. As long as you fail to recognize the true value of your human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you see the unique opportunity that human life can bring you, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all your work and then retire to spend the later stages of your life practicing the Dharma Can you be certain you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. So we're remembering death all the time as we're here in, in life, in this beautiful place of nature where it's always giving us teachings. This is from another Tibetan Rinpoche, Sogyal Rinpoche, and um, also a student of Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. There would be no chance at all of getting to know death if it, didn't, if it happened only once. But fortunately, life is nothing but a continuing dance of birth and death, a dance of change. Every time I hear the rush of a mountain stream or waves crashing on the shore, or my own heartbeat. I hear the sound of impermanence. These changes, these small deaths, are our living links with death. They are death's pulses, heartbeats, prompting us to let go of all the things we cling to. So that Pali word for this infinity and immeasurability of impermanence is anicca. And we see it in the subtleness 
of this moment-to-moment experience that we're guided into. The arising, the becoming different, the becoming otherwise, the disappearing, the never staying the same, everything subject to change, kind of sitting in the quiet here, seeing what happens in this body-mind continuum. So it's the flowing onness of life here inside of us as well as all around us, the beginningless, endless river that's happening, these innumerable changes. And um, somebody said in an interview, like, it's so changing. It's like incredible how much it's changing. It, it, it's scary and it's awesome at the same time, isn't it? Because you can't hold on to anything. It's giving us that teaching as well. It's so ephemeral and um, impossible to hold on to that it gives us uh, an inference, an understanding of that second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is clinging and craving. And we're learning that we can't hold on through this fluxing, changing, moving, evaporating into different forms, river of life that we see inside and outside. And there's a depth that we can go to with this teaching if we see it so clearly. So another um, words from the wise, and this is also from different uh, teachings, but this is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. So where, you know, where did yesterday go? It's just a dream. It's just sort of like a phantom It's gone. That moment when you walked into this room, it's just gone. I mean, it's pretty awesome to me sometimes. You know, we feel the kind of um, grossness of the body here, and we don't think about just a moment ago, it was doing something else. And the fluctuating of it and the ephemerality of it is is so apparent but something so obvious we can't see sometimes but things around us remind us of that the sky constantly changing the light and color of everything fluxing every morning when we've walked to the um, to the dining room and seeing the light filter through the branches of the leaves and the leaves fluttering and it makes your heart flutter to, to see that because of the beauty but it makes my heart flutter too because it's not staying the same you know the beauty is disappearing all the time but another moment rises up to replace it so we may say it in different ways but we each practice either knowingly or unconsciously, to understand the nature of life. That's why we're here. 
we want to experience it in a way that wakes us up from the ignorance and delusion of seeing of seeing the profound in ways um, that maybe we never saw it before. So we can realize this by the simple virtue of witnessing nature take place all around us and within us. It, it comes, if you're really practicing, it will come to a tipping point where all of a sudden it's like that realization that all the masters talked about is there in your own life. So I want to tell you about how that happened for me one time. Um, I mean, we, we get these experiences over and over again, so this is just one time when it happened very profoundly for me. I was doing a retreat, and this was in my 20s, about 40 years ago, and um, I was doing walking practice on one of the pathways, and this was in Maui in Hawaii. And on the left side of me were some huge guava. They're t- they turned into trees already. They're, they can be bushes, but they can turn into these huge trees. A place where I practiced that was a, a guava farm and a gra- guava processing um, place out in, in the boonies. And so it's just being mindful, just doing lifting, placing, stepping, and then knowing the thoughts that went by and knowing sensations in the body and smells and sounds and just that, just the hearing, just um, sensing whatever at the five sense doors. And all of a sudden, on the left side was also a huge hibiscus tree. And um, I just sort of, in the side of my eye, I saw the flickering of the light on the leaves. Just that's what it reminds me of when I go down to the hall here, the flickering of the light. And then, you know, hibiscus uh, flowers last one day, and, and they only last a day. So I, kind of in the back of my mind, I knew that. And then all of a sudden I saw a flower just drop. And everything was flickering. And it was a tipping point. Because I was paying attention. I was following the simple instructions. Just to be present. And just noticing the changing moments. And it scared the dickens out of me. There was no reason why that should be scary. Just a flower dropped. Saw the flickering. And it scared me because there was no reason why that should be scary. Just that the mind opened to a measure of impermanence that it had never seen before. Because it was seen over and over and over and over again for a number of years already, but it was seen deeply. And so that moment was very scary to me. It was awesome too. So I kind of went quickly to my teacher, Manindraji, and um, I knocked on the door and I said this happened Manindraji and I don't know why you know but this is happening within me and you one does become fearful when they see change it's a natural occurrence for some fear to arise in some kind of don't know why and I was crying when I saw when I saw him but Manindra was happy 
because of the seeing of impermanence. It's when your teacher gets happy that you, when you see anicca deeply or you see the impersonal nature or you see dukkha suffering deeply like that. So I started to see and understand that everything's falling away. And because it's falling away, you know, there's a moment of its solidity, but then there's a moment of its insolidity and actually seeing through the solidity of things. It was pretty scary. And it it wasn't about um, that the world was going to end, but it was about every moment was kind of ending, and it was seeing the ending moments of life. And so there's a way that one stabilizes in that place, and so it became okay. But that understanding sort of really deepened in my um, in psychologically and spiritually. And so what happens when this goes on is that life, when you see um, this kind of depth of life, and it's, it's a beginning point really, it's not, not like I was enlightened or anything, it wasn't like that. Um, but it's one of those um, watershed moments when you really understand something that you've never understood before. And it's like all of a sudden the world stops and it makes you think that life is more precious than we ever thought it ever was. That we really have to use our, our life in a way that's worthwhile. worthwhile. Carlos Castaneda um, from the teachings of Don Juan explains this really well. It's when you stop thinking about things and you're just with whatever's happening. And you're not trying to figure anything out. You're just with it. So he says, whenever the internal dialogue stops, the world collapses, the world as we know it. And the extraordinary facets of ourselves surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. So it's when, it's just beyond the words, because words concretize everything. But the reality, the deep reality of life is beyond that concrete wall of words. So the Buddha gave the teachings, this uh, particular teaching I'm going to read to you, 159 times. It was recorded 159 times in different areas and were of the suttas. And this one was from the Kanda Samyutta Nikaya. So, um, somebody could get enlightened listening to this. So, <laughs> just hearing, let the words go in. So, at Savati, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, form is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of form is also impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? And then he goes on to say, and these are all the aggregates of the five aggregates, form, and then going on to say, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, knowing itself impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of consciousness is also impermanent. 
as consciousness has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? So I wanted to read that, especially because um, sometimes in the minds of human beings, consciousness is the last holdout. You think that something is permanent. It must be knowing, right? But even that is impermanent from the words of the Buddha. And also, I'm not speaking um, theoretically. I understand this experientially. So in the normal course of doing our practice, um, this truth of impermanence is soaking in. And if we keep doing our practice, the wisdom potential of the heart and mind will be realized. So we begin to live naturally in alignment with the truth instead of resisting it or using our energy in a way to kind of run after what's always pleasant and run away from what's unpleasant. We will start to see our life as this kind of letting go process, if if we say it in a kind of positive way. It's sort of letting go of what we can't do anything about doing what we can do, but letting go of attachment to result. So this doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It means that we do what we can, but we let go of our attachment to the result of what we want to happen from what we're doing. We do good in the world. We let go of what causes suffering also. So one of my colleagues um, who also practiced with Manindra... Jack Engler, he said that the whole of our Dharma lives is a grieving process because we're letting go all the time. And when we, are, we practice with Manindra, sometimes he couldn't say anything at all to, to us as students. He would just say, see us and say, let go, let go, let go, let go. That's all he could say. So finally, the flowing onness of the river teaches us not to resist the truth and to really live it and live in alignment with us. And then life is lived from a richer level. It's not that life becomes meaningless. It, be, it becomes actually, um, a, there's a deeper understanding of life and we can live knowing how precious it is. We use our life skillfully we turn it towards liberation. At the same time, we serve humanity. We do what we can to make this a better world. We understand the preciousness of life, the importance of being kind, the importance of letting go of unkindness. And we begin to be a real human being. This is from one of the great uh, teachers that We've had many, some of you may have practiced with him, um, S.N. Goenka. He says, real wisdom is recognizing and accepting that every experience is impermanent. With this insight, you will not be overwhelmed by the ups and downs. And when you are able to maintain inner balance, you can choose to act in ways that create happiness for yourself and others. Living each moment happily with an equanimous mind, you will surely progress towards the ultimate goal of liberation from all suffering.
So this is how it is. Now let's sit for a moment and let those words just affect us without needing to remember them. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.